This is Gesher, the podcast that's bridging the gap between the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities with conversations that matter. Here's your host, Ty Perry, with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. Hey there, everyone. I want to welcome you to today's episode of Gesher. Thanks for tuning in. It's great to have you with me. You know, several years ago, I joined a small Bible study group in Las Vegas where I was living at the time. And though I may have been in many Bible studies over the years, this was by far the most unique one that I've ever attended. It was composed of a Baptist pastor from Vegas, myself, and two conservative rabbis, one originally from Chicago, the other from Mexico City. And as you can imagine, lively conversations came out of this study. The rabbis taught portions of the Torah through the lens of rabbinic Judaism. The pastor and I taught the New Testament Gospels from the evangelical Christian perspective. It was remarkable. I enjoyed the study immensely. But some of the best outcomes of this Bible study, in addition to learning about one another's perspectives, were the friendships that were formed between the four of us. And my guest today is one of those friends. Rabbi Felipe Goodman is senior rabbi at the historic Temple Beth Shalom in Las Vegas, Nevada, a post he has held since 1998. Prior to this, he served as assistant rabbi in Comunidad Bet El de Mexico in Mexico City, one of the largest conservative synagogues in Latin America. Rabbi Goodman is active in the American Israel Public Affairs Committee and a host of other organizations involved in Jewish and pro-Israel causes. But most importantly to me, he's a good friend. Felipe, welcome to Gesher. Thank you, Ty. It's great to be here with you. Well, Felipe, you were on a, a few a couple seasons ago. I think you were our first podcast episode. Uh, so I wanted to have you back, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're calling this Ask the Rabbi. We'll be having uh, an Ask the Pastor segment here at another show. And uh, I know you, you're this is old hat to you because you have uh, done this for the, the kids in the Sunday school yeah, at the we synagogue. I'm hoping your questions are a little bit different than theirs. We'll, we'll try. We'll try. These are all submitted by uh, listeners and uh, oh. they're in different categories. So we're going to go through as many of them as we can in the next few minutes. But I want to begin uh, with, with a question that was submitted. And I'm hoping this will kind of lead you into a little bit of sharing your personal story uh, of being a rabbi. And the question is, how does a person become a rabbi? And I want to put this in a little bit of a context. In uh, This was asked by a Christian, and in Christian circles, uh, there we, we have what we call a calling. It's a calling to the ministry by God um, through, through his word and through circumstances. So the question is, is that the same for you? Is it more of a, a, a career move? How does a person become a rabbi? So I, it's a very interesting question, and I think it's a combination of a couple of things, right? Uh, look, there's definitely a calling to the rabbinate. You cannot become a rabbi if you don't have the calling because you lose your mind. Mm. Uh, this is not for the faint of heart by any means, and uh, you really have to have a calling. On the other hand, there's a lot of uh, serious education that really comes to, together with this, that it's not just about... Uh, trying to listen to the, the, the pulse and the, the voice of God, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's important to understand that beyond the calling, there is some serious schooling that is involved here. And by the way, reform rabbis, conservative rabbis, orthodox rabbis, we all have a different process of becoming rabbis. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, from my perspective, as a conservative rabbi, right? Uh, you really need to have a calling, like I said a couple of times already, and you also need to have the patience to be able to stomach and to, to get under your belt all the years of studying that you need to do after you graduate college, mm -hmm. which is not an easy thing to do. So you like do... My, father, my father used to say, if you would have spent the same time as you spend in rabbinical school, in medical school, 
you could be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> so you, you do undergraduate work. And then in your case, you went to the rabbinic uh, theological seminary in, uh, in New York City. Is that right? Yeah. So you do undergraduate work and then uh, you go to rabbinical school. In my case, it was the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is really the most uh, important home of the conservative movement in the United States. Uh, Reform rabbis go to the Hebrew Union College, which they have in New York or Los Angeles. And then Orthodox rabbis go to a, any number of different uh, yeshivot. A yeshiva is an institute where they study basically religion only, and it's not at the graduate level. It's, not, it, it's a completely different way of coming into the rabbinate that we have as conservative and reform rabbis. Okay. For, for rabbis, it's much more academic. And and just so listeners uh, know, the there's a spectrum when it comes to Judaism, or there's branches. You have the the orthodox, they'd be kind of the, the fundamentalists like like me within Christianity, and then the reform are kind of on the, on the left theologically, and conservative, you're in between. Is that right? Right. Uh, I mean, look, we can spend the whole of the post- podcast talking about <laughs> the difference and how we all came about, right? Because right. it's not only in between, it's a, it's a reaction to reform. It's not a watered-down orthodoxy, but rather a reaction to reform. And orthodoxy comes in so many different flavors that I think we cannot compare it to, like, evangelicals uh, sure. or, like, the, the right wing of the theological spectrum in Christianity. Because within orthodoxy, there's also very left wing and very right wing and there's all sorts of flavors and colors mm. well another question that was submitted is as a as a rabbi and this is so broad but what are your duties i i know uh and because i know you i know that you have um a special uh niche if you will there, there's got to be a better way to say that but in terms of writing gets uh can you talk a little bit about your your general duties and then you know that that specialty area sure. so first of all it's important to understand that in Judaism, you do not have to be ordained as a rabbi to be able to perform marriages or to be able to bury people or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You, any Jew that's knowledgeable, knowledgeable of the law can actually perform those rituals. It's really not a problem. Uh, nowadays, more and more Jews are not familiar with those rituals. You obviously need a rabbi to perform of life cycle events, right? Uh, and then there's... Uh, you know, there's the counseling part of this and the the, the not-so-spiritual part of this, where you deal with the day-to-day functioning of your congregation or community. So, so being a rabbi is not unlike being a pastor, uh, except that here, you know, you, you need to really be completely uh, immersed in the knowledge of Jewish law, at least in conservative Judaism. I have a little bit of a peculiar area that I concentrate on, which is, I write Jewish writs of divorce, which we've been doing for over 2,000 years. And that's called a get? A get, yeah. Uh, it's called a get because it's in Hebrew it's written with the letter Gimel and the letter Tet. And those letters combined give you the number 12. And the get is a document of 12 lines. Okay. That's what it's called a get. Interesting. Now, uh, there's only 17 rabbis in the conservative movement that do this. In Orthodox movement, there may be 100, right? Uh, so it's not a lot. Uh because it's super complicated. It's, it's a very complex area of Jewish law. So I find myself writing kitin, your divorces, for people all over the world and uh, sending them to other places so that their local rabbis will deliver them then to the women that are getting divorced. Uh, it's a very interesting area of Jewish law. Mm. So I spend a lot of time doing this too. 
Well, the other question uh, we have here regarding the rabbinate, uh, and I suppose it, it involves more this the synagogue, the life of, of the Jewish people, is what happens on Shabbat, uh, on the Sabbath? Um, so specifically, uh, this person says, when does it start and end? When does the Sabbath begin and, and end? And what happens in between? So I guess it would depend on your level of observance, but walk well, us through that. Generally speaking, traditional Judaism, right, which we are part of, uh, Shabbat begins at sundown on Friday, and it ends at uh, sundown on Saturday. Now, why at sundown and not in the morning? Because if you remember, the book of Genesis says, and it was evening, and it was morning, the first day. So in, in Judaism, because God created the day beginning by the evening and then the morning, and he called it a day, uh, then we you know, begin our observances at night. Mm. Uh, what we do in between, basically, is we rest, we pray a lot, we eat a lot, <laughs> and we sleep a lot. Uh, you know, and we rest, we really rest. Like, for example, I I am in a different category because I'm a rabbi, so I come to the synagogue, and that's kind of like work for me. Mm -hmm. But I don't do anything that desecrates Shabbat. You know, I have Shabbat dinner with my family and guests. We come to the synagogue, have the evening service. Then the next day, come to the morning service, uh, have lunch, rest in the afternoon. And then at night, we have the afternoon service. And then we do a vala, and that's the end of Shabbat. But we don't do anything strenuous. We don't do anything that, uh, that violates the spirit or the rules that God has set for us as the observance of Shabbat. So you mentioned there's a few different services. Um, I've attended at, at Temple Beth Shalom the Friday night services, and uh, those are called Kabbalat Shabbat. What what is Kabbalat Shabbat, and uh, how does so, it how is it different from the other two services on on Saturday so itself? First, of all, it's important to understand why Jews pray three times a day, right? When the temple was standing, there were three compulsory sacrifices that needed to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem three times a day: evening morning, afternoon sacrifices. Mm -hmm. That's what we pray three times a day. The sacrifices were replaced by worship services. Uh, Kabbalat Shabbat, which is the way in which we receive Shabbat, the word Kabbalat means the, the receiving of Shabbat. It's a little fanatic ceremony before the evening service where we welcome the Shabbat bride. We, in the Jewish mystical tradition, we perceive Shabbat as being the bride of the Jewish people. Mm. And so we welcome Shabbat every Friday night and it's very different from the other services because it's, uh, you know, we sing a lot. And again, it's, it's a very celebratory service that mimics the wedding of the Jewish people to the Shabbat, which is the bride of the people. Sure. Um, I, I'm interested because in the, in the scriptures, uh, Israel and like God is, or Israel is often pictured as being the bride of God. So how does... I mean, do you view it that way, that, that you're the bride of God and of and, and Shabbat is the bride of the Jewish people? Well, you're talking about the prophets, right? right. Uh, so look, there's prophets obviously left and right talked about the metaphor of God being the husband and uh, Israel being the bride. Mm -hmm. uh, we use that metaphor a lot also for Shabbat and for observances and for the Jewish people. We like to think that there is more in our relationship to our tradition than just observance. We would like to think that it's much more of an organic celebration where we become part of the observance and the observance becomes part of us. And that way we become part of, with God too, right? So that way, uh, I think that's how all the metaphors came about. Okay. 
Well, uh, sticking with the theme of Shabbat, what is your favorite food to have on Shabbat? Really? Yeah. Cholent. I thought that uh, might be the answer. Tell us yeah, what, what Cholent is. Well, Cholent is a, is a Jewish dish from Eastern Europe, which is basically a stew of five different types of beans, uh, meat, potatoes, barley, onion, garlic, uh, and a number of other ingredients that you can find around the kitchen where you put in a pot with water and you put in the oven from the beginning of Shabbat because you cannot cook on Shabbat, but you can leave something, you know, in the process from before Shabbat. Okay. So you put it in the oven before Shabbat and you take it out during lunch on Shabbat. And Jews have been eating that for, for a long, long time. If you look at the commentary of Rashi to the Talmud, Rashi was a medieval rabbi uh, in, from the region of Champagne in France. He commented uh, that shalot was a, a dish that he already ate and he knew. Right, and he translated that to French saying chalant. He said, called it chalant, chalant, because it spent the night cooking. In, in Eastern Europe, people would bring their pots to the local bakery where they would put it there because they didn't have these ovens at home, and then they would retrieve it after services and eat it at home. So, those, those, uh, those stories of how chalant came about are incredible, but chalant is absolutely delicious. See, I love talking to you because I get a history lesson. You're, you're so knowledgeable, I appreciate that. Um, I want to go into, you know, there's two topics we're not supposed to talk about, and that's politics and religion, which, of course, are, I think, the most interesting topics. So I want to go into the political realm. Um, and you and I have talked about this. You know, I'm a conservative uh, Republican. You you are, a, a, I would say, moderate Democrat. Um, why is it that, and this is a question many evangelicals have, why is it that the Jewish community generally votes more Democratic uh, versus the Republican. You know, generally we think of the Republican Party as staunchly pro-Israel. I know there are many, many pro-Israel Democrats, but um, why why do Jews tend to vote Democrat? Look, there's a couple of answers to that question. First of all, let me tell you, I think that in modernity today, you will find that a lot of Jews vote for Republican candidates. Okay. Uh, I think that that has changed a lot uh, lately, uh, and it has to do with the issue of Israel. Uh, another answer is that Israel is not the only issue that Jews care about, mm-hmm. right? We, we care about a number of other issues, and we care a lot about social issues. Remember also that when Jews first came to the United States, they were organized in unions. And so that has a lot to do with their allegiance to the Democratic Party. Sure. Not in my case, right? I have no history with the unions in the United States. Right. But for social issues that basically put me in the drawer of a moderate uh, moderate Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and you also find staunch support of Israel among Democrats. I think the problem with the support of Israel comes with the extremes on both parties, right? Uh, and that's what we have to be careful of. I, sure. And I always say that the Jews should exist in the center. You know, it's the best position for the Jewish people to be in, the center. Uh, that's where we have thrived. We were able to be in the center. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, do I have this theory? You can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but we come from different, uh, like we could look at the same text of scripture um, and that to some extent uh, on, on a spectrum will deter or will inform how we view the world, how we interpret social issues. But a big part of that is how we interpret that text. And so uh, you know, as a, as a, I guess you'd say a fundamentalist Christian, I look at the text 
differently than you do through a lens of rabbinic Judaism. Do you think that has that plays a role in how that plays out uh, informing our political views as well? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I mean, um, you know, it, for me, it's always been a, a puzzle how Christians interpret the Bible, right? Because now I understand a little bit more, mm -hmm. but but there seems to be it seems to me that the Bible people seem to be able to pick and choose what they what they're going to be serious about and what they're not serious about, right? Right. Uh, Christians, for example, fundamentalist Christians get very very uh, concerned about uh, homosexuality, but they're not concerned about keeping the laws of kashrut. Mm -hmm. Now you have explained this to me, so I understand why that happens. But we certainly have very different interpretations, and we come to the text with thousands of years of differences of theology and opinion on social issues. Remember that uh, we have exegesis that says that the Jewish people is a hammer and the Torah is a, a rock. And every time we come to the rock with a hammer and pebbles come out, the pebbles are equally as valid as a rock. Mm. That has been the process of Jewish intellectual history throughout time since the beginning of the common era. And I think that it has a lot to do with our understanding of history and politics. Yeah. Well, going to the uh, across the, the other side of the world, as it concerns the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the dynamic there, uh, you're in Israel all the time, and uh, I've had the honor of traveling there with you. Um, what is your opinion of the conflict, specifically of Israel's relationship to the Palestinians, um, those living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem? Um, what's your evaluation of the situation there? Okay, so first of all, it was an honor for me to travel with you, <laughs> okay, and uh, we have experiences that we'll never forget. That's right. Let me, let me just tell you this. A couple of weeks ago, Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, was standing next to the Chancellor of Germany in Berlin. And he was asked by a German reporter if he was willing to apologize for the massacre of the Israeli athletes in the Munich Olympics Games. And Abbas, who was speaking in Arabic, switched to English and said, in answering the question, Israel commits 50 holocausts a day in Palestine. So there's two problems here, right? The German chancellor remained silent and then the, the German press actually completely destroyed him, mm. right? And he apologized and said that it, it was completely out of the question for him to have remained silent. You know, there's no comparison between the Holocaust and, you know, the Palestinian conflict with the Israelis, et cetera, et cetera. But Abbas doubled down for a couple of days until somebody advised him that he was, this was not wise. So. I characterize the conflict as the Palestinians never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Mm -hmm. People always focus on Israel, trying to think and say that Israel is the one that's on one peace. No matter how many times we offer our hand in peace to these people, they don't take it, they step on us, right? Uh, how many times at Camp David, American presidents have brokered peace? A couple of times with uh, Arafat, one time with Abbas, yeah. and they just didn't accept it. Even when we said, okay, we'll give you half of Jerusalem. They said no, which was unbelievable to us because that's what they always wanted. Right. And they said no because the moment they make peace with us, their uh, inappropriate uh, illegal appropriation of funds will end, the abuses of power will end, the bribes that they take will end, the abuses that they abuse in their own people will end. So the free ride and the gravy train for them will end. Right. That's how I see this conflict, right? I really believe that if if they want to be peace, there will be peace because we want peace, but they're not willing to seriously commit to peace. Now, 
On the other hand, right, we're not just going to sit and wait why, while they make up their minds, right? Israel's exploding in population, thank God. Israel is becoming uh, bigger and stronger. And there is no reason why we shouldn't be in the land that God gave us, which includes the, the Judean desert and the Shamron. And we, if you ask me, I, I, I understand that I, I'm within my own movement, the conservative movement, I hold a very unpopular view on this, right? I believe we have a divine right to that territory and we should stay. Yeah. Because by the way, if we give it back to them tomorrow, right, which by the way, we conquered it legally in a war that they started. If we give it back to them tomorrow, nothing will happen. Mm -hmm. They will use it to launch rockets against us, just like what happened with Gaza when we gave it back to them. Yeah. Right? I think it was the worst mistake we ever made was to give them Gaza back. Because look at what happened with Gaza. We have to go in there once a year and bring down buildings because they cannot help themselves and stop throwing those rocks at Israel. Right. Launching those so that's in a nutshell what I think, Ty. Yeah. Do you see a do you see a distinction between uh like when we talk about the Palestinians or the Israelis did such and such or hold such and such a view? Do you see a, a difference between the governments and the people? I mean, I guess as I look at it, if I, when we talk about the Palestinians, I feel horrible for Palestinian people, but I don't feel I don't feel horrible because of anything Israel's doing, I feel that it's a it's a result of really so, bad leadership. Do you... Let me let, let me give you some advice. Yeah. You know, you're a little young. <laughs> uh, stop feeling bad for the Palestinian people. They elected their government. They elected Hamas, Gaza, and they elected the Palestinian Authority. Yeah. Don't forget that. Okay, they elected them. They chose it. We didn't choose it for them. So don't feel so bad. All right. Thing is. Uh, I support Israel as a whole because it has a democratically elected government. Mm -hmm. So whether I agree or not with the government in power at the time, I support the state of Israel because it's a democratically elected government that's put in place. And, you know, people have the right to agree or disagree with the government. I don't agree with everything the government does here in the United States, right. just like I don't agree with the government does in Israel. However, I don't stop supporting the United States or loving the United States just because we have somebody I don't like in power or we've had somebody I don't like in power. Right. And, and so that our listeners know there are, there, there's Arabs on the Supreme court, there's Arabs in the Knesset. So it's not that they are without representation. Uh, they, they have Look, more freedom in Israel than they have anywhere else in the middle East. These government that just fell, uh, the unity government, which I thought was a wonderful thing, had uh, an Arab party in it for the first time in Israeli history. Mm. There was an Arab in the cabinet I mean, how, how, how much more do you want to say? Right. Right. So, so this thing about apartheid and this and that, it's absolute nonsense. Yeah. Well, let's move on to, to theology. Um, and I'm interested to hear your answers to some of these questions. We've talked about most of them. But um, the first question is, do you personally have a favorite book or, or portion of the Tanakh that you like to read? If so, what is it and why is that your favorite? So it's interesting, right? Because you know that we... we we don't read the Tanakh, we study it. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different than you do. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a part that I, I love to come back to again and again and again, uh, which is the creation of the world. I, I love that. The beginning of Bereshit, the beginning of Genesis, and also the book of Deuteronomy, uh, around chapter 25, where it sets forth the foundation for freedom of choice. Mm. Uh, to understand that, yes, uh, God... Uh, has veto power on how 
our consequences affect us, but we are responsible for bringing those consequences about through our choices. Yeah, that's one of my favorite mm. places to, to to be stuck at in the, in the Tanakh. Sure. Well, the other question here is uh, Christians. When we read the the Tanakh, or we often call the Old Testament, I think regrettably, uh, but when we look at the Tanakh, we see what we would say prophecies or or things that point to the messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth. Understandably, you do not, or we understand you do not. Why do Jewish people generally uh, believe that the Messiah is yet to come? In other words, why do you believe Jesus is not the Messiah? Look, uh, I've said it to you many times, right? It's just not, we don't have the bandwidth to deal with Jesus. Uh, we, we never, we never had the Messiah come. Uh, not according to a rabbinic tradition. Jesus was not recognized by the rabbis as a Messiah. Therefore, he's not the Messiah. We're all rabbinic Jews, the Jews that are left today in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we're still waiting for the Messiah to show, period. Uh, that's it. So is there is there a ser- is there ever a, an examination of... is? Let's see if Jesus is the Messiah. Let's look at the prophecies that these Christians are always talking about, or is it uh, I think what you're saying is post-Temple Judaism, Rabbinic Judaism, started with a rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Therefore, it's not an issue we need to even address. Is that kind of that's what you're correct. saying? Yeah. It, okay. it doesn't start, I mean, that's not part of our main agenda, right? Right. It's a byproduct of the Rabbinic thought process. So it's not like, like, like one thing we concentrate on. I mean, it's just something that we don't talk about because it's not part of what we do. It's not part of what we believe. He was not the Messiah. End of story. We move on. Hmm. So I want to ask you personally, because um, I know there's there's different views within the Jewish spectrum. Do you believe that the Messiah is an individual, or do you believe it is an era, or something else? That's a very good question, Ty. Um, I'm going to answer with a very Jewish question. I do not know what I believe. Okay. Because I believe many different things, and depending on the day of the week, I believe another one, right? Mm. Sometimes I'd like to think that the Messiah could be a person. But most of the time, I think the Messiah is going to be represented by a time in the world uh, and not necessarily by uh, a person-like figure. Okay. So, and, and by the way, we've been debating this for, for thousands of years, so I'm not, in, I'm not alone in thinking this, right? right. And I'm just a, a lowly rabbi in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I'm not a sage or anything like that. But uh, I also, you have to understand, I don't occupy most of my time thinking about the Messiah, <laughs> because I, I don't have time to do this. I, I, I have to fix the world for the Messiah to be able to, to arrive. Mm-hmm. So that's what I try to do. I try to make this world a better place. Yeah, in the, in the Christian world, we would call you uh, post-millennial. You believe that the Messiah will come after Takun Olam, or after the, the world is repaired. Um, I, don't, I don't hold that view within Christianity, but it's very interesting, the, the similarities. Um, the next question, uh, I, love, I love talking to you about this one. In your view, is it possible for a Jew to also be a Christian? No. And why not? Because we don't believe in Jesus. That's, that's the line that you don't cross, right? We cannot believe in a false Messiah. End of story. Mm-hmm. So, and I put this to you before, you have someone who is uh, you know, born of a, let's say both parents are Jewish mother and father, and they don't observe any of the, any of the law. 
they are atheists um, and, and militant atheists. They, they wage war against the idea of there being a God. That person in your paradigm is still considered Jewish, but the person who, uh, same scenario, mother and father, both Jewish, and they trust that Jesus is the Messiah, they are not considered part of the, the fold. Is that right? And just explain why. And I'll explain to you why. It's a very simple answer. We are not only a religion. The, the Jewish people, we're part of a people. And, and you're part of a people whether you believe in God or not. But if you believe in the wrong God, then you cannot be part of that people anymore. Mm, okay. Okay. And, and so, so it, it's very important to understand that's the line that we do not cross. Uh, I was talking actually about this with a friend this morning about the, the case of Father Daniel in Israel, who was a Polish-born Jew during the Shoah, during the Holocaust, was given over to a convent, and he became a brother. He became a, a monk, and then he tried to make aliyah, right, saying, "Well, I was I'm a Jew because I was born of a Jewish mother." And the Supreme Court of Israel, it was in the 60s. The Supreme Court of Israel ruled, "No, absolutely not." Right? This is where we draw the line. Mm-hmm. To be part, to be a Jew, you have to be part of the Jewish people. And when you actually believe in another God, you cease to be part of the Jewish people, even though we're not only a religion, that's part of our peoplehood. Sure. And in his case, he even became an anti-Semite. Sorry? And I believe in his case, he even became, he's even anti-Semitic. He's not anti-Semitic. No? He actually ended up believing in Israel. Uh, no, no. Okay. I think he understood very well. Well, I mean... He just really generally believed that. And I understand it. Look, Jean-Marie Stiger, the Archbishop of, uh, of Notre Dame, may he rest in peace. Mm-hmm. He was exactly the same case. This, this man could have been Pope, right, in the Catholic Church. And, and he was born of a Jewish mother. And he understood that even though he considered himself part of the Jewish people, the Jews will not consider him part of the Jewish people anymore. Sure. Two more questions for you. First, sure. how do Jewish scholars today understand passages in the Old Testament, such as uh, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, um, and those that also speak of a Messiah that would be reigning. So my understanding is that historically there's kind of been the Messiah, son of Joseph view, the suffering Messiah, then there's one who's who's the suffer or the uh, reigning Messiah, somebody like King David. Um, do you know, how do, how do people make those work? Okay, so... Look, it, it's a very complicated thing, right? Because, yes, you, there's Messiah, Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah ben David, right? There's a Messiah that's going to come from the line of David, from the line of Joseph. So it's different Messiahs. And we do not know which one is going to be the, the actual Messiah. Uh, on the other hand, right, you need to understand that the way you put emphasis on the prophetic texts, we do not, mm. right? And, and we do not see those prophecies as prophecies that, that recreate themselves continuously or that happen at one specific point in time. We just see it as part of our history, but clearly not addressing any specific individual. Uh, you know the story of the Maharal of Prague, right? The, the rabbi of Prague, the Maharal, was famous for the stories that he told. And uh, they asked him, how do you come up with a story for every single sermon that you give? He says, look, I do things the opposite way. People usually shoot an arrow at a target. No, I first shoot the arrow, and then I paint the target around the arrow. Mm. Sometimes I get the feeling that's what Christians do. Because you have the story of Jesus, you make it fit into these prophetic readings. That is to say, you paint the target around the arrow that you just shot. Uh, that's not the way we look at the text in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Now, and I love each other, and we can disagree on this. Oh, of course. The- of course. Yeah, and we will. Um, <laughs> no, but the, the, related to that is, and, and this probably depends on the branch of Judaism, but if a, 
do you personally believe that the Bible as we have it today is the inspired word of God? Like this is, this comes from God and, and we would even say it's inerrant in its original text. Said the, okay, there's a difference between the inspired word of God and the word of God. Which one do you want me to answer? We view it as being one and the same. So make the distinction, I guess. We would say, we would say that the word of God is all, inspired. It's breathed out by there, him. There is a difference between the five books of Moses, the Torah, and the books of the prophets and the writings. Hmm. There's a huge difference. Uh, when it comes to the Torah, I think that most people in traditional Judaism tend to believe it is the word of God, word by word, space by space. Uh, some people in my movement believe that the majority of the text is divine. There's a human element in it, so it's divinely inspired. But because we cannot tell it apart, we have to consider the whole text as being entirely from God. Mm-hmm. I believe the text is entirely from God. I also do believe we have the chance, or not only the opportunity, but the obligation to interpret for modern times. Uh, when it comes to the rest of the Bible, prophets and writings, uh, I do not believe that text comes directly for God, from God. It may be divinely inspired, but certainly not directly from God. So how do you, what is the distinction there? What is inspiration that's not from, directly it's from a God? Very, look, the Torah was dictated by God to Moses, and Moses literally wrote it down. I see. That's what we traditionally believe. The other books of the Bible were not. So do you view it as, the with the prophets, that that is, uh, that it was guided by the Ruach HaKodesh? We would say the, the Holy Spirit? By, yeah, of course. It was guided by Ruach HaKodesh. Just like the rallies of the Talmud were guided by Ruach HaKodesh. I also believe that. But, you, but uh, it was clearly not God's hand writing those words or speaking, or God's mouth speaking those words. Okay. Final question for you. How do you sure. view the New Testament? Do you recognize it as a Jewish text or as something else? Well, first of all, you will never hear me call it the New Testament because that implies there's an Old Testament that's old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I call it basically the Gospels. Right? I'm with you, by the way. With you, I I I I don't consider the Jewish Bible or the Hebrew Bible old. I just think the Gospels are something different. Mm-hmm. Look, uh, I never in my life studied anything from the Gospels until I sat down with you and with uh, Pastor Tice. Uh, we, we I never did. Right. Uh, not even a word. Right. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. I find it tremendously interesting, and the similarities with Rabbinic Judaism are just striking. By the way, so. I tend to put it more in the realm of rabbis trying to make sense of the of the world than anything coming out of the mouth of God. Uh, you know, it was not written in Hebrew; it was written in Greek, which to me, or in our, you know, to Aramaic. me that really takes a lot of the of the of the authorship authenticity away from it. Mm. So uh, that's all I can tell you. Ty. I don't want to. I don't want to go further into this because. I don't want to offend any of your listeners. Uh, you right? won't offend us, but I, I appreciate that answer. Yeah. Uh, I said that was the final question, but I have one other. Um, sure. Christian support of Israel is is something that, in my experience, a lot of my Jewish friends don't know what to do with. And I know in some ways that's been the case with, with people in your congregation. Um, explain that. How do you view Christians and their support of Israel? It's been the case with me too, by the way. I mean, uh, at the beginning of this whole adventure where I'm from Mexico City, where there's only one kind of Christianity, Catholicism. Uh, So when I came first to to the United States to work as a rabbi in Las Vegas, even though I was in New York City for six years, 
I never really had contact with evangelical Christians before or with anyone who was not uh, Catholic. And it, it was very interesting to me because, you know, we went to all these services where you bless Israel. And you look at the way in which Christians literally love Israel and talk about Israel, and you cannot believe it because this is not the story that we have been living in, right? right? It's not our story. Like my grandparents were persecuted by Christians too, and 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 not like not like by mistake, right? They were specifically sought out for being Jewish and persecuted yeah. in Europe. So. Yeah. so I sit in the middle of these services waiting for an anvil to like fall on my head, <laughs> right? Like, when is this going to end? Now, having said that, I I have to also say that building this relationship has really taught me a lot of things. And one of them is that I don't have to be suspicious of everyone that crosses my path. Mm -hmm. My history and my story as a Jew sometimes conditions me to do that. Uh, but since I met you and others like you, I've let my guard down tremendously. And that's uh, no small credit to you, Ty. Uh, I think it's very important so people understand that the love of Christian Zionists for Israel is genuine. That you don't want us to die for the Messiah to come or anything like that. Right. I, there's people who really believe that, by the way, who really think this is the the, the intention of Zionist Christians. Yeah. I know that's not the fact. And uh, you and I have shared time in Israel together. And uh, remember when we went to buy those boots? I do. That put discount and not me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they found it amazing that you were Zionist Christian. I, I, you know, I made sense to them, but you made no sense. So they gave you twenty five percent discount. It was unbelievable. Yeah, that was right? that was the Blundstones for for listeners. So, Blundstones are an Australian boot that Israelis love, and they wear it to formal events and casual events. And Felipe bought me a pair, and the owner was amazed to know that I was a Christian who loved Israel, and uh, gave me the Christian Zionist discount. Gave Felipe nothing. Right, and that happened a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they're they're, they're shocked, yeah. right? Look, we're, we're, we're used to Christians visiting Israel, but we're shocked when we truly understand that you feel love without any ulterior motive. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, Ty, because of the history that we have lived through, that's the way it's going to be. And, and, and uh, it's going to take a lot of these relationships like yours and mine to, to get us over that hump. I agree. Well, Felipe, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, please know that uh, there are a lot of listeners uh, Christian listeners to this who are Zionists who love Israel and love the Jewish people and are proud to stand with you. Um, but thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, for all the information you shared and for letting us pepper you with questions. Thank you, Ty. Say hello to the family and uh, hope to see you soon one of these days. Sounds good. We'll see you. You've been listening to Gesher a ministry outreach production of FOI Equip, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. To learn more, visit foiequip.org. And for more information about Thai, visit foi.org forward slash Perry. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.